Well, today we're in our fifth week of the series Covenant and Kingdom, where we're taking a look at the nature of God, God's nature, who he is, his character, and how that relates to our covenant relationship with him and with others, and how that also pans out to kingdom purpose and kingdom responsibilities as we are the hands and the feet of Jesus Christ. This is week five, and I've taken for a title this week, After God's Heart. After God's heart, and it's going, we're going to take a look at the life of David. Now, I got to tell you, when you look at the life of David, it's, it's very difficult not to get into the weeds when you talk about David. There's so many storylines to the life of this man. But today, I want to raise three significant characteristics about the life of David that I think will help us to understand not just why he was great and became the greatest king in Israel's history. But also, I think it'll help us to see the characteristics of our loving and great and faithful God and Heavenly Father. I'm going to start off with a statement that I think sets the table for the rest of the message. Simple statement. The Bible is an Asian book. It's an Asian book. The Bible came to Europe from Asia. And so the people of the Hebrew nation were Asiatic people. And so when you look at the Bible, you have to look at it through the lens of Asian culture. Uh, I had a, a seminary class with, with biblical historian Dr. Ronald Allen, and he said this. He said, he said, the Philistines in the Bible are the only European culture that's represented in the Bible. Powerful. So now we've talked about um, um, throughout this series how Hebrew culture, uh, in Hebrew culture, the youngest or the oldest male is the one that inherits the family wealth, the family business, the family inheritance. And if you look at the life of Joseph, you'll see that it's the youngest son that always gets doted on. He, he's the one that gets spoiled. He gets treated almost like the family pet with a pet name. Everyone looks after him. How many of you know that's true? How many, any youngest in here of, of many siblings? Is, isn't that true? My youngest sister gets away with murder to this day. Still does. So, so the youngest gets doted on, always spoiled. Now listen to this. David is the youngest of the eight sons of Jesse, which makes this story all the more intriguing. Find out why in a minute. If you have your Bibles, I want you to join me in 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16. In this chapter, it begins with God giving instruction to the prophet Samuel to go down to Bethlehem actually to quit lamenting over Saul being denounced as king of Israel and to go down to Bethlehem because in the house of Jesse, I have, I have chosen uh, the successor to, Paul, to, to Saul, 
a new king of Israel. So Samuel journeys down to Bethlehem. Let's pick it up in verse 4. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? Now, let me stop there for a second because Samuel is a bad dude, man. This guy hears from God, and when he speaks, he speaks as the oracle of God. And if he's coming to pronounce judgment on you, you can, you can bet that judgment is coming, right? And so these men, these elders of the city meet Samuel, and what they want to know is, hey, man, did you come in peace? And Samuel said, peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when he came, he looked at Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before me or him. But the Lord said to Samuel, watch this now, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Scripture goes on to tell us that the other seven, or, or seven, all seven of the sons of Jesse, not including David, are marched in front of Saul, and Saul looks at each one of them, and he turns to Jesse and says, the Lord has not chosen any of these. Is it, do you have one more son? Is there, is there another? And Jesse replies, yes, there's, there is one more. It's David, and he's out in the fields tending my flock. Then the scripture says that when David finally arrives after being cleaned up, the scripture describes him as, as ruddy, which means that he was, basically he was really, really tan from working in the sun. He was of red complexion, probably reddish brown hair, bright eyes, engaging eyes, and very handsome. And God instructs Samuel, he says, listen, this is the one. So Samuel anoints David, and immediately, the Bible says, immediately the power of the Lord overshadows David, mightily empowering him. And David now is anointed the next king of Israel. But now let me stop there. Because we'll miss something if we're not careful. This passage begs an answer to a very significant question. Here it is. In light of what we know from Hebrew culture, why is David the youngest, the one that's doted on, the, the one that, that, that is spoiled, the one that is, is like the family pet child? Why is he not called with the other seven sons when Samuel is reviewing the family? And remember, Saul is the prophet of the land, family. He's, he's the prophet of the land. And it's a big deal now for him to come down. He's elderly. He doesn't make very many appearances. And all of a sudden, Samuel shows up on Jesse's doorstep. And they don't even know why he's there. So why doesn't the family call for David? Now, I'm going to tell you what I believe to study in this. I believe it's possible that David wasn't called with the other sons because he was viewed as an embarrassment to his family. In Psalms 51 and 5, David makes this statement, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, 
And in sin, my mother did conceive me. It's possible that David is stating that the circumstances of his birth were surrounded by sin. Scriptures tell us very little about David's mother. In fact, her name is not even mentioned in Scripture. You've got to go to the Jewish Talmud to find out who she is. Her name is Nixevic. It's spelled N-I-T-Z-E-V-E-T. Nixevic. Now listen, according to to 2 Samuel chapter 17, Abigail is the half-sister of David and was the daughter of Nahash, who was possibly at the time of David, king of Ammon. He's a heathen king, okay? And it's also believed that it's possible that Nahash was the husband of Nesevet, David's mom. Now, Keep in mind, it's not unusual for for a Jewish man to have another wife and to have another set of children by another woman. That would be considered legitimate. So, one of two things possibly occurred with the birth of David that made his birth highly controversial in Bethlehem. The first is this, that Jesse marries Nisevet, who in the eyes of Jewish law would have been considered defiled because of her previous relationship with a heathen and Ammonite king and therefore ineligible to marry any Jewish man. Or second, this is what I've come to believe, that David's birth, it's possible David's birth was the result of an adulterous affair. And adultery in Israel was never legitimate. Either way, somewhere along the line, David enters into a relationship with Nesevet, and David is, con- or Je- Jesse does, and David is conceived. Now, watch this. Now, Jesse is a prominent man in the community of Bethlehem. He's one of the elders. And so, this would explain why the elders of Bethlehem were so afraid when Samuel came to visit. It would also explain. Perhaps why, why, why David was given the tedious, hard, and dangerous task of shepherding the flock in the field because the family were, was hoping that he would be eaten by a wild animal while he was in the field performing his duties. It's possible. Why else would you send a teenage boy, the youngest of eight, into a pasture that is full of wolves and bears and lions. Why would you do that? I think David lived with the pain of being rejected by his father and shunned by his mother, shunned by his brothers. I believe that it's through this pain that David writes in Psalm 69, Save me, O God, for the floodwaters are up to my neck. Deeper and deeper I sink into the mire. I can't find a foothold. I am deep. I'm in deep water and the floods overwhelm me. I'm exhausted from crying for help. My throat is parched. My eyes are swollen with weeping, waiting for my God to help me. Those who hate me without cause outnumber the hairs on my head. Many enemies try to destroy me with lies, demanding that I give back what I didn't steal. In other words, what have I done? to deserve this. What have I done? 
Oh, God, you know how foolish I am. My sins cannot be hidden from you. Don't let those who trust in you be ashamed because of me, O sovereign Lord of heaven's armies. Do not let me cause them to be humiliated, O God of Israel. Listen to this. For I endure the insults for your sake. Humiliation is written all over my face. Even my own brothers pretend they don't know me, and they treat me like a stranger. Some commentators say that that word stranger there means bastard child. I believe that it's in David's woundedness that he has, he, it, it creates in him this insatiable need for affirmation, this insatiable need for affection that governed his life. And so I believe that the fields, instead of being a, a dangerous place, they were still dangerous. I believe that they became a, a safe haven and a refuge for David. I believe that being alone in the field provided David with an incredible opportunity to grow spiritually and to grow personally. And I believe that David took full advantage of it when he was in the field. Watch this now. David became an excellent Shepherd protecting his flock, slaying both the lion and the bear with his bare hands in the field. He became a master of the sling and the stone, using these weapons to slay the mighty giant Goliath in what I would consider, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, possibly the greatest mismatch of two combatants that I've ever heard of. In case you didn't know it, David was in his early teens. This is not on my notes. David was in his early teens. Goliath Goliath was over nine feet tall. That's a big boy. Hmm. I believe that it was during David's time in the field that he grew in his love and his devotion and his relationship with God, that it deepened. And I think that it's in this time of growth that, that, that David, was, David grew so much that he stepped out of his woundedness into becoming a worshiper. David became a worshiper. Through worship, David learned that that affection and, and, and affirmation should be found in God and God alone. He learned how to do that through worship. David honed his skills as a musician and as a singer and as a songwriter. David, David discovered his, his poetic genius. As a matter of fact, no poet has been constantly and consistently used and quoted more throughout the history of mankind than the, the poems of David. His poetic psalms are masterpieces in spiritual literature. David practiced the harp until he became one of the most proficient musicians and accomplished musicians in all of Israel. So accomplished that he was eventually summoned to the courts of King Saul because he was the only person that, whose music could soothe the spirit of King Saul. And David would use his gift of worship to drive an evil spirit out of the presence of King Saul. David was a worshiper. And when David worshiped God from a, from, from a place of brokenness, his heart stayed aligned with, with God's covenant relationship with him and God's kingdom purpose for his life. And it's through this brokenness that God used David to experience victory after victory after victory in his life. 
And so I believe that it's to this truth that, that David writes in Psalms 34, 18. He says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions or, or troubles, if you will, of, of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them, him out of them all. And the Lord time and again delivered David. Such is the case when, when King Saul, he was still king, was pursuing David. And David had the chance to actually kill Saul twice. Once in a cave, when Saul went to use the bathroom, and uh, David cut off the edge of his garment just to let him know, oh, man, dude, I was right there with you, man, and uh, I could have taken you out, but you're God's anointed, and I've made a covenant with you that I'm not going to lay a hand on you. But, dude, you got listen, quit chasing me. Right? The second one, <laughs> she's paying attention to the message. The second time is recorded in, in 1 Samuel chapter 26, where David has another encounter with Saul, and David's on the run. He's being pursued by Saul. Saul is in hot pursuit, but Saul stops and makes a camp in the valley at nighttime. And listen, I think sometimes God doesn't play fair because God causes a deep sleep to fall on this camp. 3,000 of Saul's most well-trained men are in a deep sleep. David and one of his mighty men, Abishai, go down to the camp. And if I could just use my imagination, you know, they're, they're sneaking through this camp of 3,000 people, right? And they're good at it. They've done this before. So it was, no, it was nothing for these guys to come in stealth. But I could just imagine they're just doing all of a sudden, Abishai trips over something and cans go all over the place, and nobody wakes up. So Abishai goes, hmm. So they walk up to Saul, and the Bible says that Saul has a spear laying next to his head with a glass jar full of water. And it says, and the scripture says that Abishai turns to David and says, see, man, I told you, now is the time. God has given you this man into your hands. And here's what I want you to do. He says, listen, listen, all I want to do is just strike him. If you let me strike him right now, I don't want to, I'm not going to hurt him. I just want to kill him. Read the scripture. That's what it says. It says, listen, man, I'm only going to strike him once. I'll pin him to the ground. He won't even feel it. David says, no. You cannot touch God's anointed, nor will I. Hmm. Bible says that David and Abishai get clear, and David turns after he's clear, and he yells over to the camp, and obviously God had, had released the, the, uh, the deep sleep that was on him, and he yells to Abner, Saul's captain of the guard, hey, man, you can read it, dude, you are not on your job. I could have killed the king, but I didn't, and here's why he didn't. I believe that David had learned relational balance. 
Remember, remember I, I think the Abide series where we had the triangle, where we talked about the three aspects of relationship, the up relationship with God, the in relationship with others, and the out relationship with the world. I believe that David was in relational balance. I believe that his, his heart was right with God. He had communion with God in his covenant relationship with him. I believe that he had covenant relationship and communion with those in his inner circle who kept him online, kept him on task. And then I believe that David understood covenant relationship and that even though King Saul was no longer the the anointed king, David said, no, I'm in covenant relationship with Saul. I'm not going to touch him. I believe David understood those things. I think it's this balance for passion and purpose and covenant relationship that God would use to eventually bring David to the throne of Israel. David didn't have a problem until he got isolated. As long as David was in covenant relationship with God and others, he was okay. But when David became isolated, that insatiable need for affirmation and affection that governed his past life now began to regain control over his life. And let me tell you something. The same is true for us today. There's a reason why, family, there's a reason why God gives us an up relationship with him and in relationship with those close to us and an out relationship with the world. There's a reason why God wants us to hold those relationship in balance. And when we pull away from the purpose of God in our lives, we isolate ourselves from each other and from the world. The things that used to control our life now begin to creep back in, take a stronghold began to control us again. That's what happened to King David, I believe. So now David is king. Second Samuel, the 11th chapter, records a very bitter time in his life. Listen to what it says. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings would go to battle, David sent Joab his servants with him and all of Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbath. David remained at Jerusalem. Now, David is king. It's the spring of the year. It's a time of the year where it's not really, really intensely hot in that region. It's a time of the year where they're taking advantage of previous crops from the harvest. It's a time of the year that's perfect for the kings to go out and do war. It's a time of the year where David's covenant relationship with his people should have kicked in, but instead something is going on and David is at ease and he's at his house. Verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Now, for sake of time, I'm going to tell you, I'm just going to streamline this story. You can go back and read it. The woman's name was Bathsheba. David brought her to himself, and he slept with her, and she got pregnant. And so David, in an attempt to conceal 
this sin called for Uriah the Hittite. Don't miss this. Called for Uriah to hit the Hittite, one of his 30 mighty men that he was in covenant relationship with. Calls him off the battlefield in an attempt to get him to sleep with his wife to conceal the sin. Uriah refuses. He's a warrior. So David finds out that he does, and next night he calls him in again and gets him drunk, sends him home, and Uriah refuses to go in to his wife. He lays at the door and doesn't go in. And so then David calls the captain of the guard and says, send Uriah out to the hottest part of the battle so that he can be killed and then bring me back word. And that's what happens. Uriah the Hittite is killed. David takes Bathsheba. She becomes his wife. The Lord sends Nathan the prophet to David. And he exposes David's sin to him. And David, in, in typical David fashion, immediately repents. And here's what, here's what Nathan tells us. He says, God has forgiven you of your sins. He's forgiven you of your sins, and you shall not die. However, the consequences of your sin will be three things. Let me tell you something. When we think that it's okay what we're doing and we're sinning, we think we're going to get away with it, God sees everything. God sees everything. God sees what? God sees everything. And here's what I've learned in the 50-plus years that I've been alive. The consequences of sin come to us in three ways, one of three ways. Time released, time delayed, or immediate. But the consequences are coming. Prophet Nathan says, immediately you will suffer the consequences. Your baby will die, and it did. He says, your wives will be violated openly in a public place by your own sons, and they were. The sword shall not depart out of your house, never until Shiloh comes, and it has not. This is what I want to leave you with today from this incredible story. Though all these things came true, yet in spite of David's flaws, God still worked through him to become the greatest king that Israel has ever known. Why? How does that happen? Peter, you can bring your team up. What lessons can we learn from the life of David? Here's the first. The circumstances of our origin don't matter to God. It don't matter. God still looks at the heart. And so the, the, the issues of origin are non-factors for God when it comes to him using us for his kingdom purposes. Second, don't try to hide your sin. That's the second lesson we can learn from David. David was quick to repent of his sin. No matter how severe the sin, no matter how severe the consequences, do not try to hide from your sin. Confess them. 
John writes for us in 1 John 1, 8 and 9. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. But if we confess our sins, our Father, our God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's all sin. There is no sin that has ever been committed that the blood of Jesus Christ and his atoning work on the cross cannot reach out and cover. And third, God specializes in making beautiful out of the ugly. In God's hands, murderers become worshipers. In God's hands, adulterers are forgiven, cleansed of their sin, washed and made pure by the blood of the Lamb. In God's hand. Why? Because we have a Father who loves us unconditionally. We have a father who wants to use us no matter what we've done or where we've been. And he will if we'll surrender our life to him. He loves us unconditionally with an everlasting love, the Bible says. That's why. I want to close today by reading out of the Psalms. You can go ahead and play, man. I want you to shut your eyes for just a moment as I read out of the Psalms. Psalms 103. The psalmist writes, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. What are they? He forgives all your iniquity. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with a steadfast love and mercy. That's the covenant relationship that we enjoy as being kingdom children of the Almighty Father. He satisfies you with good things, and so your youth is renewed like the eagles. Where have you been? What have you done? What have you been carrying that's got you weak in your, in, in, in your, in your spirit, weak, Maybe in your relationship with God, weak in your relationship with others. Where have you been wounded? And you've been carrying those wounds and not relinquishing them to an almighty God who says, I'll carry that for you. Lay them at my feet. I'll, 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 I'll purge you. I'll wash you and make you clean. I'll restore you. I'll lift those heavy burdens from you. Whatever it is that has you wounded or weary, our God, our Father, 
He is more than enough. He is more than enough for you. Father, thank you for your steadfast love. Thank you for how your scripture says that you use those who've gone before us to testify of the hope that we have in your love for us and your steadfast, everlasting mercy that endures forever. Thank you for that knowledge and that understanding of who you are in you. In Christ's name, amen.